Now it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Madeline Brand. Madeline is a journalist who has worked in public radio for 25 years as a reporter and a host for NPR in Los Angeles, New York, Washington, and beyond. She is also the host of Press Play on KCRW, Southern California's flagship NPR affiliate. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Madeline Brand. Thank you very much, and I want to welcome up the panelists. So come on and sit down, and I will give you a quick bio as to who they are. To my immediate left is Roman Vaxiar. He's an economist at UCLA Anderson School of Management, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he studies the effects of the global spread of democracy over the last few decades and how different countries' cultural attitudes affect their economic performance. Next to him is Samara Klar. She's a political scientist at the University of Arizona School of Government and Public Policy. She studies how individuals' personal identities and social surroundings influence their political attitudes and behavior. And this is really rock star. She also founded WomenAlsoKnowStuff.com. It's a website to support female politicals. And to her left is Keith Chen, a behavioral economist at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He was head of economic research for Uber until 2016. He works at the intersection of economics, psychology, and biology, and his latest research focuses on how people's economic choices are influenced by the structure of their language. Please a warm welcome to our panelists. Okay, so we're talking about how divided we are or not divided. So I just wanted to survey the audience on a little piece of news that's crossed. I don't know if you're aware. I just want to ask, show of hands, how many people support impeaching the president? Okay, that looks like a lot. How many people believe this is a partisan witch hunt? Okay, not a single hand. All right. Uh, let me ask something that's a little less divisive. How many people are just sick of hearing all this and want our leaders to do something to make the country better? A fair amount. Okay. So it seems that this audience has a particular point of view. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, had I asked these questions in, say, Kentucky, would I have gotten an entirely different response? I think you might have. I think it's um, unusual to see this level of consensus. Maybe some people who felt differently didn't raise their hand at all, um, and you didn't get exactly the truth. What's striking in research on people's political beliefs is how diverse they are, and uh, in particular uh, beliefs about um, social questions. Uh, you often see a much higher level of within-group diversity than you would expect. So you might expect, for example, a um, you know, a, a certain category, let's say Republicans to be uniformly against gun control or Democrats to be uniformly in favor of gun control. But most of the variation in beliefs uh, for gun control is not explained by whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. So you can't uh, in say, fact, it's not explained at all. You can't say, okay, Republican, therefore pro-gun. You can't say that. Uh, you will see a lot of variation within, within those groups, uh, within, the, within the groups. Huh. Um, so what's striking is that the level of diversity within groups is so high. That doesn't mean, though, that we are not divided along some salient dimensions or that divisions haven't increased over time. So uh, divisions, um, when you ask a random question about a social issue, be it uh, you know, marijuana legalization or 
uh, gay rights or uh, free speech. Uh, you're going to see a lot of diversity in the answer, uh, but the, the degree to which you can predict that answer by knowing someone's political affiliation has increased over time. But what about politics in general? I asked a couple of political questions, or three political questions, and that seems to be, Samara, where we are really divided. We are, seems like we're really pulls apart. At least this audience isn't firmly in one camp. Yeah, I think what's most unusual about this audience, if we're gonna talk about why you guys are so strange, um, <laughs> is how politically engaged they are. Most Americans, and this isn't meant to be a normative criticism, uh, but most people are not spending their evenings listening to a panel of uh, experts <laughs> talking about politics. And that's because people have other things to worry about and other things that they're concerned about. And there, we see a big misperception in terms of how, um, you know, people tend to view out partisans as being really, really engaged with politics really ideologically extreme, and that tends to drive a lot of their animus against the out party. But in fact, the vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans identify as moderate. They say they don't really want to talk about politics that much, and they actually are perfectly happy to spend their time with someone from the out party who's like them, who's not that interested in talking about politics, who wants mm. to just talk about regular things. So this room is a, is a group of extremely engaged, uh, highly knowledgeable, um, you know, highly knowledgeable, knowledgeable citizens, but that's not the norm. But I wonder if people are more engaged now in politics than they were, let's say, pre-2016. You know, I think that we've seen some increase in grassroots activism, specifically regarding things like um, teachers' unions, gun control, but generally the level of engagement has remained fairly stable when we look at things like voter turnout or the frequency with which people talk about politics with their friends. Those things haven't really gone up. Keith, you did a really interesting study about Thanksgiving right after the 2016 election um, and, and how people wanted to spend their time with members of their family who maybe voted for someone who became the president. So I'll have, to be, I'll have to be a little bit careful because I have family members in the audience. But uh, to, to summarize and say, that this is, uh, you know, the 2016 election, you could think of it as, as, I mean, we all lived through it. Everyone understood just how kind of divisive and polarizing of, a, of an election that felt like. Um, you know, this is not inconsistent with, with, uh, with, what, with what people have said kind of so far, but in this specific event, at least, like it seemed to be tremendously polarizing. and. Uh, American families seem to have a very, very hard time not talking about politics just two weeks after the most divisive kind of election in kind of modern American history. And the amazing thing that we find, and I'll, I'll, I'll cop to this, the way that you can measure this is by watching people's smartphones like move in space. Like, you know, for example, everyone has a good sense that if you carry an Android phone, Google knows everywhere you've been and everywhere that you're going. Um, but when you watch people's smartphones, um, if uh, Thanksgiving dinner was likely to feature families, one of whom voted for Clinton and one of whom voted for Trump, that Thanksgiving dinner in 2016 was 47 minutes shorter than that, than that same Thanksgiving dinner in 2015. And that effect went up to about an hour and 40 minutes um, if you happen to live, nobody here lives, this is another thing. If you, if you live in Los Angeles, um, you basically didn't see a presidential uh, advertisement in 2016 because it wouldn't make any sense. Um, this, is, this wasn't going to be anywhere close to a swing state. If you lived, for example, near Orlando, you saw over 22,000 political ads, presidential political ads, played in your media market. And for every 1,000 of those political ads, your Thanksgiving dinner shortened another two and a half minutes. Um, so we see some evidence that at least at these salient moments, politics really can have a very kind of corrosive effect, especially on things that you wouldn't have thought, like 
close, uh, close family relationships. Now, there is like positive evidence. Um, so in surveys about the most recent Thanksgiving, um, you, know, uh, the, you know, normally if you talk about like things that you're not supposed to talk about at Thanksgiving, there are surveys that ask, what shouldn't we talk about at Thanksgiving? Obviously, like money, religion, there's many things at the top. Um, post-2016, politics is now the number one thing that everybody says we don't talk about at Thanksgiving. Hmm. So maybe that's an adaptation. Yeah, and Samara, you've all done some research into that, into when people identify as super political or not. There's, this, there's a question, if you're a parent and you found out that your son or daughter was gonna marry someone from a political party that you're not a part of, how would you feel about that? Yeah, this is a question that's been asked uh, over the last half century. How would you feel if your child married a member of the other party? And how would you feel if your child married a member of your own party? And what some political scientists have found is that people are now more unhappy with the idea of their child marrying somebody from the other party than they have ever been in the past. And in fact, the political scientists have found that they are actually more unhappy with their child marrying somebody from the out party than somebody from a different religion or a different race. So uh, my co-authors and I um, re-ran that experiment, but this time we had different treatment groups where we asked, we, we defined how often that hypothetical out-party in-law would talk about politics, how engaged they are with politics. What we found is that people actually would rather have their child marry an out-partisan who never talks about politics than someone from your own party that talks about politics all the time. <laughs> well, maybe that person is just a bore. I mean, yeah, exactly. No one wants to talk about politics. And if you think about it, if all you know about your in-law is their partisanship, it's a fair, uh, you, can, you can fairly assume that they're really into politics. But if you specify, hey, dad, my, my boyfriend's a Democrat, but he's not going to talk about it, then they're fine. Right. That's perhaps what Samara is referring to is, I think, a reaction that is pretty salutary, that is in the face of what's perceived to be growing political polarization, a big category of people uh, pull out uh, of the process, refuse to participate in the animosity that, that exists, and so, and unfortunately also sometimes take it too far and, and don't actually participate in the political process at all, but uh, the, the recognition that there's a big chunk of people that don't, uh, that don't want to basically become um, part of the polarized debate, uh, you know, is, um, uh, it, it might, might be what saves us at the end of the day, that something, something else will emerge, uh, leaving those uh, fringe uh, views to be, uh, you know, to fight among themselves and so us normal people. I also, figuring something I, else like, out. This, this really resonates with me as well, and I also wonder if it can partially be because sometimes polarization, or at least political disagreements, can be most violent when the differences are the smallest. Like, I've seen, you know, Warren versus Sanders disagreements, like, just get, you know, <laughs> just, like, explosive in ways, because, pe because I think people also then have a feeling that maybe the other side is convincible, right? Mm -hmm. Like, whereas, you know, I don't know, if I, you know, if I... Well, that yeah. is interesting. So you, you, you're stressing the differences. And, Maybe that's and, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that shows up in the media environment as, as polarization. That doesn't mean that the underlying beliefs are different. Agreed. Right. Um, but that it's also false. It's also a difference in gender, too, in that case. And we Maybe. saw that in 2016 with Sanders and Clinton, too, mm -hmm. that there was a lot of division based on whether a woman should be the, elected as the first you know, woman president or not. Um, do you see that in any of your research as increasing, so, sort of a divide along sex gender and gender? So what's interesting about gender is, um, of all the divides we look at, in my research we look at 11. So you know, wh where you live, uh, whether you're in a rural or urban area, 
income, etc. Gender is the one where uh, you can least predict someone's values on social issues by just knowing their gender. It's actually so close to zero, it's almost indis indistinguishable. And that came as a shock to us because there's many questions that have where you would have expected more of a gender uh, aspect to it. So for example, on uh, you know, abortion rights, you would have expected perhaps, I, I don't know, uh, you know, women to be more pro-choice and men to be more pro-life. But that's, that doesn't really show up as a significant difference in the day. It's a little bit there, but, what, but, but it's not a very large difference. And when you look at the average question that is asked on a social issue, gender is the least predictive of all the cleavages. The most predictive is education levels, uh, although that's been stable and recently has been overtaken by political party and uh, religion. But again, it's um, political party and religion only explain a small fraction of the variation in, in what people actually believe when you ask them questions uh, about, social, you know, about social trends uh, policy. So we keep hearing that there is this great uh, divide between blue and red, between the blue coastal cities and places yep. in the coast and the red flyover. Is that overstated in the media or is, is that a real thing? Um, there is a divide. Uh, uh, there is a certain ability to predict, it's just, and it's more than in the past, it's just not very big. Uh, you know, so just by knowing you're, that you're on the coast will not get me very far in trying to understand whether you're, uh, you think that uh, gay people should be allowed to marry, whether uh, marijuana should be legalized, whether uh, someone who is a communist should be allowed to make a speech in public. By the way, on that, the consensus has risen. We're much less divided than we used to be on questions about free speech. Uh, so on many questions that you, know, you, you may not think are salient questions nowadays, we've kind of resolved our differences, usually in the direction of some consensus, for example, on free speech. And so we no longer think of those questions as being relevant, but they are because we all agree on them. So I think it is a, partly a fallacy that we're, uh, we, I think it's partly a fallacy that we say we're, we live in this divided society. It's a fallacy because we pick the questions that are the most divisive and we think those are the most relevant ones and we ignore the ones that uh, you know, are subject to more consensus because it's just not that interesting to report that everyone agrees that a communist should be able to make a speech in public. Mm -hmm. um, you know. Well, uh, the news is about conflict. Yeah. So yeah. if there's no conflict, and, there's and no the, news story. That's the point, the, the underlying preferences just aren't that divided, but the, the way they seem to appear in the media. Well, and is, in Congress and on in Washington. Oh, yeah. And so how oh, their, their polarization has definitely increased. But that yeah, is, and um, so they, is there a big, there's a big division, a big disconnect between yeah. the members of Congress and whom they represent? Yeah, I think yeah. both Congress has become increasingly polarized over time, for sure. And can Congress people themselves tend to vastly overestimate how ideological their constituents are. They tend to view their voters as much more ideologically extreme than they really are. So I think the polarization that we see in the media is, the media aren't fabricating polarization for ratings. It come, they come from, from Congress. You know, the Senate and the House are more ideologically polarized than they used to be. Now, I agree completely with Roman. The American citizens actually really aren't. We see a lot of agreement where you wouldn't expect it. We see that, you know, if Democrats and Republicans are asked to imagine the most extreme partisan they see on the news, they have extreme, uh, you know, animosity towards that person. But when you're at your kid's soccer game, you're at the grocery store, you're on the bus, you're sitting next to Democrats and Republicans all the time and just interacting with them perfectly pleasantly. So we don't really have this partisan warfare in the streets. Congress, however, is a different situation. There we are seeing much more polarization. And by that, I mean the Democrats that we have elected are much more liberal than they used to be. 
and the Republicans that we elect are much more conservative than they used to be. So that's where we see that real bipolar But we're electing them. So doesn't that say something about who well, we are? Well, I think are? it's both the supply and demand. I mean, the um, studies are showing that a, a lot of it is choice. Who's, who's running for politics? So it comes down to money. How are they going to get funded? How are they going to find donors during the primary season? And we end up with candidates that are more extreme than we used to. I think... Uh, the ability to figure out where voters are um, and which, what preferences they hold through polling, et cetera, has made uh, gerrymandering much more effective. Mm -hmm. And that has led to safer districts where it's okay to be more extreme because you're not going to lose your seat. Mm -hmm. And the game being played at the primary level as opposed to the election level explains, uh, you know, yeah. explains why it's more polarized there. Although it doesn't work for the Senate because the Senate also got more polarized and the yeah. And their gerrymandering doesn't matter because every state has two senators. So, um, so there, there's still something to be explained. But um, um, this but, is this is, yeah. I think, the interesting puzzle, which is, uh, you know, all of the evidence suggests that Americans are less polarized than we think in terms of beliefs, uh, in terms of like you know social social beliefs, beliefs about kind of appropriate political discourse, and all of those things. But for some reason, in this one action, this one uh, behavior that people take voting. Um, which, which you know, directly leads to the aggregation of this into into kind of the people we have representing us in Congress. We are more polarized than ever. Like, mm -hmm. well, well, at least more polarized than we've been in the last 50 years. So the chances that an American lives within 500 meters of someone that uh, that voted differently than they did in the last presidential election has plummeted by like 20 percentage points. I mean, it, you know, we're at the precinct level and even in non-gerrymandered areas like the county level. Um, you know, we're 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 just um, Kind of two-party votes are splitting much, much more than they ever have, um, and that's that's unusual. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find that kind of. But why kind of is that? Is it because we're now moving to areas and flocking to areas where people are like us? Why why is it that now we are living in such politically polarized places? So, Samara probably knows this research better than I do, but the, you know one one. One, one thing that we know that it's not is, 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 is differential moving, um, just because the speed at which Americans now move. So, you know, in, in some of my research, you find that the, you know, the modal kind of voting precinct. So in other words, you vote at that elementary school because you live on this block, your neighbor votes at that post office because they live a block away from you. Like the modal precinct is now almost 80-20, right? In, in most kind of areas, like, you know, in terms of 80% of people around you vote, voted for the same candidate you did. Um, and, you know, that has moved so quickly that it, there's just not enough, people just don't move houses quickly enough in order for that to have occurred. Um, you know, so what I think that suggests, especially in light that of, of this evidence that people are talking about, that, that beliefs aren't polarizing, is that maybe the political parties themselves, right, the candidates themselves, at least at a local level, are getting better at kind of sorting their, sorting, sorting out exactly how to match like the people who they're appealing to, their local voters, and that parties are getting better at that. Hmm. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the effect of the media on what people believe, because um, that is obviously having a huge effect, and people are consuming media in so many different ways now. They're, they're so fractured in how they get their information. Um, Keith, you are doing another piece of really fascinating, I would say sticky piece of research on something called hurricane trutherism. Oh, wow, And yes. what, first of all, what is that? So again, like we're Californians, so, well, at least I, I, I assume that most of you have never, well, I, I don't want to make any assumptions. <laughs> um, 
well, at least now you don't live in a state that's threatened by like a regular kind of storm season. But um, if you if you lived in Florida or, or or even like the Carolinas, hurricane trutherism is becoming this large kind of feature of life, where um, now um, whether or not you believe that hurricanes are um, relatively severe has become a partisan issue. So I don't know if you've realized this, but but uh, right before Irma, which you know the National Weather uh, Service, you know NOAA, you know NASA, like every government agency that's ever looked at this, basically said Irma was bad. Irma was the most energetic hurricane ever ever uh, tracked through uh, through the Atlantic. Um, but about a month before Irma happened, I'll give you an example. About a month before Irma struck Florida, um, Rush Limbaugh, uh, Ann Coulter, uh, like several kind of prominent right commentators basically said, listen, um, you know, this is all kind of a government conspiracy. Um, you know, you know the, 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 everybody wants you to believe in climate change, and the quickest way to get you to believe in climate change is to uh, kind of cause fear and panic through telling you that a hurricane is bigger than it actually is going to be. Rush Limbaugh literally said, um, you know, I have my own system. I'm a longtime Floridian. I, I actually listened to the whole broadcast. He was like, you know, I'm the guy who changes my Wi-Fi router when it goes down in the house. Uh, trust me, Irma's going to miss Florida. Okay. Um, two weeks later, he actually evacuates. Okay. But uh, but from that moment, like in Irma, and never seen before in a U.S. hurricane, there was an 11 percentage point wedge between Republican voters and Democratic voters in the willingness to evacuate. Again, by, by watching whether or not your smartphone like leaves Florida, um, you know, like Republicans evacuated at about a 30% rate and Democrats evacuated at about a 40% rate from counties that had warnings issued um, that, that had never been seen before and, uh, and it's continued through recent hurricane seasons. And like, it's, it's an interesting example because, you know, listen, like if you, know, you want to yell at other people uh, on Facebook, you know, who may disagree with you, that's one thing. You know, but how costly is that really to you? If you have to stop watching football because that's become polarized, maybe that's a little bit more costly to you. But if you can't like evacuate when a hurricane's bearing down because it's not consistent with your political beliefs, that's a that's a serious issue. And like so that mm -hmm. that's the that's the kind of um, really personally costly actions um, that that we're starting to see emerge. Maybe maybe they've always been there, and we've only been able to start really measuring them because of the kind of big data environment we're all living in now. Um, but, um, but in my own work, I, I find like really worrying signs like that. So I guess I'm a little confused because if we're talking about how most Americans are pretty moderate and not that extreme, then why are a significant portion of them in your research believing in hurricane trutherism? That seems pretty extreme. You know, and we were just talking about this in the green room. I think one interesting kind of separating factors. So for example, let's take a counterexample. Um, we were just all talking about how quickly uh, you know, uh, social beliefs and kind of general support for same-sex marriage changed in the United States, right? And, um, and it feels to me like one of the, the very salient things about that is that as beliefs started to move and as, as for example, um, you know, gay Americans started feeling comfortable coming out to their close friends and family members, it started becoming really personally costly to hold kind of beliefs that you may have held, you know, like squirmishness that you may have held about um, associating with those groups just 10 years ago, kind of thing, right? Um, you know, with, with relatively more abstract issues like climate change, it feels to me like people are willing to polarize 
um, on a belief that's not actually very personally costly. Now, if then later that means that you're not allowed to evacuate your home when Irma's bearing down, now it starts to become personally costly. And, and I think that that's an interesting process that you see people kind of working out in their own heads. I'm really interested in how climate change has become so politically polarized. Um, this is, you know, the scientists are they're, they're working with scientific data. They're not working with um, public opinion or, or anything that's a little more, you know, uh, subjective. They're working with raw data. How did this become such a politically polarized topic? Well, belief in conspiracy theories is generally divided along partisan lines. The only conspiracy theory that is actually bipartisan, and it makes it sound like a good thing, um, <laughs> is uh, anti-vaccine, belief in anti against vaccines. Huh. That's uh, one conspiracy theory where it tends to be as common among left-leaning people as it, as it is among right. To be clear, vaccines are perfectly safe. <laughs> but the conspiratorial view that they are not is the only bipartisan conspiracy that I have seen in research. Hmm. The remainder of them do tend to fall along one side of the spectrum. And you know, I think it's because, as Keith was suggesting, a lot people take their cues from partisan elites, from leaders. And it's rational to do that. I mean, we all have jobs and families and things. We're not going to sit around researching every single conspiracy that we come across. So it makes sense to trust the people in power that we've elected that we trust. So if if leaders only from one party are espousing a certain belief, then it's going to very quickly catch on only among their partisan followers. But in the vaccine case, that seems to be more of a grassroots conspiracy. Yeah, we have seen some, some high-level elites uh, support this conspiracy. President Trump, of course, was ex issued some skepticism about vaccines, although I've heard he's now backed down on that. And he's, he's reversed his stance. Uh, but yes, that one seems to be coming from the grassroots. I think it's still rooted in the same skepticism against science, which we tend to see in a lot of, a lot of Americans. Or I shouldn't say a lot, but a non-trivial amount. If one party latched onto it, then it would certainly become a partisan issue. Maybe a lot of this also has to do with the rise of populism, which is this general distrust of elite and elite opinion. Hmm. So perhaps the um, uh, global warming case is one of those. Uh, global warming is... Uh, an issue in which the solutions are sort of very technocratic. You require a very top-down political, um, uh, you know, decision by, you know, that's driven by scientists. It's the typical kind of issue against which you would have a populist backlash. Um, and, you know, we're talking about conspiracy theories. I think conspiracy theories and populism often go hand in hand, and, yeah. and this might be an instance uh, of that. And uh, and the rise of populism has been associated with, the, with, with this polarization on this particular issue. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's likely to go away because uh, the rise of populism is with us to stay. Uh, we're seeing it universally in the whole world and it's a new uh, defining part of the political cleavage. It's, in fact, sort of the idea of talking about Democrat versus Republican is a bit... Um, Passé, I think a lot of people have moved on. Thomas Piketty in France just came out with a book on ideology where he documents that uh, the main dimensions of ideological cleavage are changing. And now it's more coastal elite belief, people who believe in science, believe in uh, you know, uh, rationality, you know, versus those who question that, question their authority and, and, and their ability to rule, so to speak. You know, so, we're seeing this uh, not just in the US, but everywhere else. 
as well. M many other places, not everywhere else, but many other places. Yeah. I completely agree with Roman on this, and, and it, it, it's terrifying, right? Because, for example, like Bolasano in Brazil, like it's basically, you know, kind of running a very populist political campaign in, in exactly this, like with skepticism of global warming. And, it may, and, you know, what we see is it actually seems to result in large amounts of the Amazon burning, mm -hmm. you know, not this is putting it a little lightly, but in some sense to like own the global libs, right? And, and that's terrifying, right? I mean, that, 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 can, uh, mm. that that's a worldwide phenomenon. But there's right-wing and left-wing populism. And, yeah, absolutely, and, yeah. And you are, and so then there's sort of cleavages within the cleavage, I suppose. And so, but are you saying that what you're seeing is the rise mainly of the right-wing populism? That's, that's alarming to you. I think so. I, th I think that the, the left-wing populism is not really that new. Uh, what's new, perhaps, in the U.S. is that, uh, you know, if you think about Bernie Sanders, for example, as being an example of left-wing populism, he has espoused policy positions that typically, you know, center-left politicians in Europe have, have espoused in the past. Or so it's, it's not a new idea mm -hmm. uh, that is taking, um, uh, that is on the ascent. But if you think of right-wing populism, certainly in uh, rich industrial democracies, those ideas are, are new, much less so in Latin America. But in, um, uh, you know, the, uh, for example, in France, uh, where I grew up, you know, uh, the National Front uh, has seen a steady rise in its, uh, in its poll numbers over the last 20 year, uh, or so years, uh, to the point that it's now arguably the biggest, single biggest party in France, maybe yeah. the second biggest party. Um, and that's, that's new. We've always had socialists and communists and everything in France, but uh, you know, since at least well before the Second World War. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, right wing, the rise of right-wing populism in rich countries is a new phenomenon. But so, I wonder if that's just a question, I mean, not just, but that is mainly a question of resources. Who has the resources, who doesn't have the resources? Who has the financial capital and the intellectual capital and who doesn't have the financial capital or intellectual capital? So that it's not, and that the ideology gets fashioned on top of that to sell it. But that the basic animus is, well, there's a high youth unemployment rate in large parts mm -hmm. of Europe. There's a lot of, you know, question about their, their economic place in a, a world in which China is ascendant and lots of refugees are coming into their countries. And, same here in America. And so is, is that basically like the ideology, I wonder if the ideology is then fashioned on top of it to make it more appealing? I'm a materialist. I believe that ideologies come from, you know, developments in society that uh, lead to people adopting different uh, views, uh, you know, as a result of economic forces like you've suggested and, and, and other forces. Um, I, uh, so I, I agree with that. But nonetheless, we're seeing those ideologies emerge there, uh, uh, you know, emerge in in, um, in rich countries in ways that they haven't before. I think also the the types of people who espouse uh, right wing populist ideas tend to tend to be certainly the case in Europe. They tended to be the old left wing electorate. The new left wing electorate tend to be urban elites that are educated. Um, now, I don't, maybe that's a value judgment. I will say, fortunately, there are more of them than there used to be. So in terms of electoral force, you couldn't previously rely on urban uh, teachers and you know, uh, civil servants, et cetera, to create a, a coalition. You needed the workers and you needed. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I, I think now you probably can create a coalition just with the, 
you know, the educated urban elite. So that's why these parties haven't come to power really in many European countries. Mm. Mm. Uh, but, but they are certainly a force to be reckoned with. And in the US, because of the different electoral uh, structure, uh, that movement has actually managed to put someone in the presidency. Right. Awesome. Yeah. But, so this seems to be a very salient feature of, of modern populism, which is, you know, connected to our main topic, like a lot of modern, modern populism that you see rising around the world is, polar, is, is almost at its core polarizing, right? It's like populism that's defined by who we don't like, right? Like, you know, what wall we want to build, what people we want to kick out, what, um, you know, what elites we want to kind of put in jail, right? That kind of populism. And, um, that kind of polarization and you know it's interesting because we all i think we all have a sense that polarization really you know it's it the damage that it does to society but the person who it doesn't damage is is usually the politician espousing it right like mm -hmm. polarization is actually i think partially become much more popular because i think politicians are just getting better at using it um you know like you know maybe amplified through a kind of a modern media environment yeah. as as a really a powerful political tool as a as a tool for gaining political power. And so symbols become a big deal, like the MAGA hat, for example. Yeah, like exactly. That is a very simple thing to understand. And so you have a politician who is wearing, like a you know a MAGA hat, which symbolizes a working guy, but he's always wearing a suit. Yeah. And <laughs> and he's a billionaire from New York. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he can energize, right? He can energize his supporters through that kind of polarization, through that kind of polarizing dialogue. And I, the interesting question that I think is the, the billion dollar question in, in modern political kind of history now is like, how long can that sustain itself, right? Is that, is that a hurricane? I, I'm obsessed with hurricanes. <laughs> is that a hurricane that eventually kind of wears itself out when it hits land? Or, or you know, is it, is, it the kind of, is, it, is it actually a basis for a self-sustaining political movement? You know, I think we have to be really careful um, if we're going to talk about this as a trend in the United States, because yeah. it's really not a trend in the United States. I mean, what we see in public opinion is what we call a thermostatic model, where the government tends to go to the right, and then the people tend to move to the left. So then they elect somebody from the left, and then the people tend to move to the right again. And we really see that. I mean, we have to remember Trump didn't win in a landslide victory. I mean, he won a minority of votes of the people who voted. So if you think about the percentage of Americans who actually voted for Trump, it is a minority. It's what 30% of Americans actually showed up to mm -hmm. vote for him if you consider the rate that of turnout. So if 30,000 people had voted differently in three states, that we would be talking about this democratic sweep of America mm -hmm. where we've mm -hmm. had Obama for two years, now we're the first woman president. And yes, I know that didn't happen and it's, it's certainly significant that it didn't happen. But I don't know if we can write a, if you know, if we can certainly say that there's a populist trend in the U.S. We do see one globally. I completely yeah. agree. Uh, but you know, we'll see what happens in 2020. I don't see evidence that Americans are moving towards this populist trend, given the fact that Trump won by. I mean, he lost the popular vote. He won by a very small electoral margin, and his approval rating is not that high. He doesn't mm -hmm. have sweeping approval among most Americans. So I'm not sure if we can really say that we're in a populist trend right now. It's, it's only been, I know it's, it feels like it's been a hundred years for many people, <laughs> but it's only been a couple of years since this has happened. Right. So in the US, I think the thermostatic model you're describing works really well. But in Europe and elsewhere, mm -hmm. if you look at the vote share of what we would broadly categorize as populist party, that's been rising. Sweden is an amazing case of that. Um, 
uh, amazingly pronounced. I don't know if you want to be amazed by it or deplore right. it. I'm not sure. Um, but but nonetheless, uh, uh, it's happened in country after country that uh, the, those vote shares have increased. And it's possible that we'll go back to the normal political cleavage in the U.S., where uh, broadly speaking, the Republican Party is the party of free trade. And uh, but but you know, this event has changed mm -hmm. things uh, when it comes to the agenda in a major way. It's amazing how quickly free traders have turned to protectionists, um, um, you know, et cetera, and on other beliefs, uh, for example, about immigration, um, how, how polarizing that has, that has been, and how much uh, um, influence the event, an event like this or, Brexit, or the Brexit vote can have on people's preferences. I think there's some long-term persistence of, of these events. Uh, they may, as you suggest, be initially due to luck, but mm -hmm. then they put us on a very different historical path. Although we've seen shifts like this back. before. I mean, the Republican Party used to be the isolationist party that was against foreign intervention. And that seemed to completely shift yeah. with, George yes. Yes. with George W. Bush. So yes. it's not that we don't, you know, we see the parties take on these different positions. And uh, so it's not unusual. It's not, it's not unprecedented, yeah. I guess is what I mean. It, so what, is, what does it say to you that more Americans identify as independents than they do in either political party? Well, in my research, I find that this is largely a function of the stigma associated with partisanship. So I've uh, done a lot of work on independence. What we find is that when people are reminded that the parties are bickering, which is any time you turn on the news, you become significantly more likely to just say you're an independent. And what I've found with my, my co-author, Yana Kubnikov, and I have a book sort of looking at this, and we find that people would rather work with independence, they'd rather live in your independence, than even members of their own party. Uh, we find that independents are sort of held up as like the aspirational oh. ideal. So there's a lot of social desirability when people say they're independents. Now this doesn't mean they're inconsequential. Independents are consequential because they're not willing to publicly support a party. <laughs> so voting's important, of course. Independents tend to vote for the same party every year. Yeah. Independents always tell me, oh, I'm totally an independent. I've never voted for the Republicans, but I'm definitely an independent. So, um, <laughs> and that's true. Independents vote very consistently for a party. But they don't have yard signs. They don't have stickers. They're not trying to convince their colleagues to vote for somebody. And that's a big problem. The, the mm. fact that partisanship is so stigmatized is a problem for democracy. Why? Well, they're not, they're not supporting their parties. They're not but getting they're out But they're voting. There. They're yeah. still participating. They're voting. Although, you know, if you look at turnout rates, and maybe we need some smart economists to do this, so you guys can take this project on. But you know, we look at turnout rate as a percentage of eligible voters who vote. But what about the amount of money that parties are spending per vote? I mean, that has to be factored into it. And it's getting more and more expensive to get people to go out to the polls. So I think the fact that they're voting is just one small thing. Campaigns don't want you to vote. They want you to donate money. They want you to talk to your friends. They want you to put up a yard sign. And those are things that seem to be decreasing as partisanship becomes increasingly stigmatized. OK. Um, <laughs> I'm going to agree with you on that and not be partisan. I, 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 I agree, too. I, I think that it's a reaction to the polarization. Some people are polarizing, and people in the middle are declaring that they're independent. They'll have nothing to do with that. And maybe they'll stay home on election day. But it's an increasing percentage. I mean, well over 40% yeah. of Americans now say they're independent. So more Americans say they're independent than identify with either of the major two parties. So it's really a huge mm. percentage. And they're often misunderstood as this homogenous group of people. They're not. They're Democrats and they're Republicans. But they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to do something that's going to publicly betray their partisanship. But I also wonder, I mean, you're talking about the lawn signs. I mean, it's sort of like a, a communal act. Mm -hmm. And a you're participating in a public act and showing people that you care about the larger civic endeavor. In every aspect of our society, we're becoming more private. 
And I, I just, like we're voting, for instance, we can vote by mail, and a lot of us do. And we are watching movies at home. Um, we are getting our news at home. Uh, and in, on our own websites that we choose. And we don't sit around anymore and watch, even in the home, with other members of the family, watch the evening news as a communal act. So I wonder if that's also part of it, that as we isolate ourselves um, in our media choices, do we become more isolated politically mm. and in the larger civic life? I mean, certainly our communications on so and, and, and this is, this is, it's an interesting question how much this is substituting for other forms of kind of overt partisanship, but certainly kind of our, our, um, our lives on social media appear to be becoming more and more partisan. Um, just like textual analysis of like Facebook posts and Twitter posts and kind of things like it seem to, seem to be becoming um, more and more so. I mean, I think all of us have a feeling that it's, I mean, you know, that you can no longer be on Twitter if you don't want to, if you don't want to think about politics, <laughs> right? Um, is, that, is that the new substitute for kind of the lawn sign, right? That like now I don't need, um, I mean, but you can choose who you follow. You can choose, yeah. and you can block people. So it's and most people different. are not posting political content. I mean, the yeah, that's the true. Content comes from a very small proportion of users. Yeah. So you know, it's just the really ideologically extreme people who tend to post on Twitter and post on Facebook, and it kind of seems like it's everywhere. But most people aren't posting at all. They're just yeah, there to yeah. read. I like so. this idea. That, I like this idea that you talked about that calling yourself an independent is basically like now the new polite thing to do. Or it's basically like, it's oh, like yeah. whereas people used to be able to say like, I'm a Democrat, but I don't want to talk about politics. Now you just say like, I'm an independent. Like that's kind of how you say right, We asked or? people, if you had to make the best impression, what partisanship would you tell them you had? And, oh, is that right? And the vast majority of Americans say, oh, I would just say I'm an independent. So on Tinder, you're supposed to say I'm an independent. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I okay. always tell my undergrads that. It's dating advice. You have to say you're an okay. independent. All right. Well, that's good advice. But, but, okay. last, you're, you're not supposed to be <laughs> I'm not supposed to say that. No, I, I, I missed the whole <laughs> online dating people, thing. I, mean, well, yeah. I think 3% of Facebook users post their ideological information on their profile. So it's not, people aren't, I mean, as you suggest, they're not sharing their political information, you know, that liberally. I think on the, on the social media, the, 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 sci the social science on social media is kind of inconclusive on whether it contributed to polarization mm -hmm. because on the one hand, you know, access to the internet allows you to interact with people that have very different ideas from yours. You're no longer constrained to your own neighborhood. You can now have this whole world to interact with. And of course, at the same time, social media does allow you to find a silo in which to interact with. So you may only interact with people who are you know, uh, like-minded. I think where there's much more evidence that this played a role for polarization is the introduction of cable news, uh, which of course predates the internet by a, a decade or so. But there's paper after paper that shows that in places, for example, where Fox News was introduced, uh, you know, in staggered ways in different places in the U.S. People became, you know, were influenced by the, by the introduction of Fox News, and I'm sure similarly on the other side, you know, where MSNBC is being watched more, you know, or was introduced, it, it probably had an effect on people's political um, preferences there, and you see the polarization that results from the ability to basically pick your source of news. Am I going to watch conservative news or or, or left-wing news, you know, and and uh, that didn't used to be the case. It was CBS, ABC, NBC. You had the nightly news, whatever their name was. You know, everyone was watching the same kind of um, common information, the common view of the world. I think was was delivered, 
and it was much harder to uh, um, to develop this this very uh, but is that polarized. better necessarily? I mean, that also provides a homogeneity that some people find found stultifying and shut out dissident voices. Yes, and it may not have been the real news, right? It could have been fake news. I don't know. I'm not going to get into well, that. Well, certainly but, one uh, view. I mean, one. Yeah, it's one view, but it's a it's a homogenizing view as opposed to one that uh, uh, pits people apart. Now, I'm, you're you're asking about whether it's a better thing. I'm not. Not sure I have a criterion to evaluate what's better. Is it good to be in a polarized society or bad to be in a polarized society? Uh, you know, we tend to think of it as bad because it leads to policy gridlock. Um, but maybe policy gridlock is better than either extreme. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think the, the moment, the, probably the, the reason people are very frustrated, maybe that feeds into the polarization, is they're frustrated that nothing can be done about the issue they care about. Hmm. If you care about global warming right now, it's a very fr frustrating moment. Um, but if you care about entitlement reform on the other side, it's also a very frustrating uh, moment, you know? Um, and uh, so there's frustration on both sides, so maybe that, that brings people to, to greater extremes. Is it good or bad that we have gridlock? Well, it depends on whether you want entitlement reform or not, or, <laughs> you know, it depends on that. I'm not sure I'm qualified to comment on that, but, you know, I have my own preferences, but, yeah. yeah. And this might be a helpful place to think again about the international context, which is, you know, one of the consequences that we see in the, in the rise of populism and, and kind of polarization in non-U.S. contexts is that one of the things that political scientists have found that destabilizes countries very, very rapidly and as a function of polarization is, you know, as, as a country becomes more polarized, kind of the, the party that wins power feels kind of more free to govern only for their the people who put them into power. Like, you know, this idea that a politician, you know, like a traditional American kind of uh, idea would be that, well, after an election, the US president is supposed to be all of our presidents, right? And, and he's supposed to, uh, so far he, right, is supposed to uh, kind of, you know, seek to, seek to do policies for the benefit of all Americans. I think one of the most damaging parts of polarization is that that idea degrade, like, you know, we've seen it in Turkey, we've seen it in India with Modi, we've seen it in, Brazil, I mean, you know, in many, many kind of international contexts, that idea that the person who's elected is supposed to represent more than just the people who elected them seems to be degrading relatively quickly. Mm. And I think that's, you know, you know, can we prove it? You know, I, that seems, to, I think of that as one of the most worrying trends. Yeah. Right. I think uh, we now have some time for questions from the audience. Uh, but first, please give a round of applause for our featured guests. I was wondering how much of uh, the divide that you see would be urban versus rural, and especially with what you were just talking about, about the news, a lot of the rural, they get either Fox or Sinclair News. Not a lot of the uh, divide is rural-urban, and it's one of the ones that has been falling. There's several uh, divides that have been falling in the United States. Much to our surprise, if you ask, uh, if you try to predict people's answer just by knowing the category of city they live in, so very rural, medium-sized, you know, large city, etc., uh, you do a worse job today than you did in the past by quite a bit. Um, partly, that's uh, you know, long-term migration flows. People have mixed. You know, people from the northeast have moved to the south. People from the south, the, you know, have moved to the north, et cetera. People have moved to the coasts, and so there's been a bit of mixing. Uh, perhaps it's also uh, access to, uh, um, you know, the, the the introduction of the internet has actually led to 
access to common information as well. We're not too sure uh, why, but it, it used to be you had a, a lot of um, uh, rural-urban divides on social questions, and those have not almost entirely disappeared, but they're much smaller than they used to be. But, but we should we should emphasize that that um, that's true about kind of social beliefs and 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 beliefs, but. Um, the rural-urban divide in voting has, has, if anything, intensified. So, I mean, again, there's this interesting uh, split between what people say they believe and when they go in the ballot box, who they vote for, mm -hmm. and the former doesn't seem to be polarizing and the latter does seem to be polarizing in the American context. Uh, my name is Todd Kerner from Hermosa Beach, and my question is, to what extent do you think the acrimony that is prevalent these days is an outgrowth of frustration particularly with the Democrats, in the structural inequalities that seem to be pervasive in this system, whether it's the number of senators from red states. I mean, Los Angeles has more people than probably 20 of the Senate representatives in Congress. Um, gerrymandering, I mean, the last two Republican presidents have been elected with minorities of the popular vote. What kind of frustration and effect does that have on just the attitude of the voter? Uh, I think a lot of the frustration we're seeing at the voter level is almost entirely targeted, or is at least implicitly targeted towards elites, towards dissatisfaction with elites. So, you know, when voters in surveys, or, you know, citizens, I should say, not necessarily voters or residents, express frustration with the other party, you know, oftentimes, especially with academic work, we're trying to ask people how they feel about people from the other party. But the respondents are telling us how they feel about elites from the other party. And it's very hard to, very hard to, to combat. So I think you're, you're totally correct that a lot of the frustration people feel about politics and about the parties has to do with the structure of the political system and has to do with the elites themselves. Hey, good evening. My name is Steven Almasan, and I'm from Boyle Heights. And I have a question regarding protests and the way that that triggers different policy ideas. Uh, just briefly, this past January, there was a teacher strike in Los Angeles that really highlighted the need for more funding for our schools and for our teachers and for our students. Um, and then consequently, after that in Los Angeles, there was a special election in May called Measure EE that asked for voters in within the boundaries of the LAUSD to vote for a parcel tax, uh, which would provide $500 million annually for the next 12 years to help support our students and our teachers. So this is an example, and at the, the end result is that it failed. Um, so, uh, so my question is, there are certain things protests can do and there are certain things protests cannot do. Uh, what would you say to folks who live in this divisive society in terms of how to encourage folks to not only take action on social media and on the streets, but to actually vote? Well, I just started a project on protests trying to evaluate the electoral effectiveness of protests. Hmm. And when you serve, I haven't really uh, gathered the data on the U.S., uh, which is my, what my plan is overall, but when you read the literature on this, there are several papers already on Russia, on Egypt, on various... Uh, Things And there's a, a paper on the Tea Party protests of 2010 in the U.S. that were very effective. In fact, uh, the Tea Party vote share where the protests were more pronounced, uh, I'll spare you the details, but it basically it worked. Uh, the results were good for the Tea Party. But in other contexts, it backfires. So I think the, the, real, uh, the, the answer to your question is much more complicated than saying protests work or protests don't. Uh, in some cases, protests backfire. I think it's the case when they're violent. Um, I call this the little old lady effect. Uh, you know, 
little old ladies don't like uh, social unrest and maybe they'll go vote for the other guy when <laughs> there's a lot of turmoil and maybe that's a stereotype, I shouldn't have used that example. But um, um, uh, so there are circumstances where it works um, and others where it doesn't. The, the, uh, I, I would say the long-term effect of protest is probably to advance the cause against which you're, you know, for which you're protesting uh, uh, through a signaling effect. So when millions of women march for women's rights or millions of people march for climate uh, action, that has an effect, not necessarily an electoral effect that pays off right away, but it signals to everyone that these are important issues we really care about. So I think, I think um, uh, the electoral outcome I would be a little cautious about. It can backfire, but... That doesn't mean you shouldn't protest. Hi, I'm Liana Wolf from Van Nuys, and I'm curious how you're perceiving elites. Is it education? Is it social class? Or is it actual net worth? When I talk about how people view political elites, we tend to think primarily of politicians, people with political power, uh, people in government. But animosity towards elites certainly extends far beyond that. We see a lot of animosity towards academics. We are, all three of us are, are not actually all overly supported by the American public right now. <laughs> uh, a lot of people have a lot of skepticism towards scientists, towards uh, academics, so. And the media. Don't oh, there you media. go, media, me too, me sorry, too. no offense, people don't like you also. <laughs> So uh, when we talk about how people have animosity towards elites, it extends beyond government. But when I refer to people's animosity towards political elites, I think primarily about politicians and people in government. I'm interested in young people. So I know we talked about gender, we talked about rural versus urban. Um, where are we seeing the trends in young people getting involved and how do we get them more involved? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the biggest voting block in the country if they actually turn out. So how do we get that to happen? Well, in terms of trends, the biggest trends I've seen with young people is uh, not so much with young men, but young women are far more liberal than previous cohorts. So there seems to be a big... We always, of course, see that younger people tend to be more liberal. We thought that people become more conservative as they age, although that evidence is actually a little shakier now. It may have been a cohort effect. Uh, so it looks like young people now are not getting more conservative as they age. And the real shift is really with young women who are solidly Democrat. Now, generally, as I believe Roman was referring to before, when we look at the greater population, gender doesn't really predict um, a lot of political views overall. But among young people, we do see, tend to see big shifts. Now, in terms of mobilizing young people, I'm not sure if either of you want to speak to that um, specific question. Well, actually, so I, I've, I've done some work on this question that interacts with the last question about protests. And I think this can be particular to young women but um, you know, one one kind of research project that we've done is uh, access to the women's march. Like being like being a young woman who comes from a city in which a bus traveled to the women's march, and, and so you know you were able to participate. Um, you see kind of knock-on effects where then like the march for science in that city becomes visibly larger. Um, you know the the uh, anti-travel ban uh, kind of protests that happened in those cities become visibly larger. And then, uh, and then you're, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit too early, and, and there's not enough kind of statistical power to tell. But you do see at least weak effects on on willingness to vote. So, so engagement on those dimensions does seem to be going up. Well, I think that's going to be our last question for tonight. Um, but please, let's give another huge round of applause to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you. And. 
Before we close, I also just wanted to say uh, another great big thank you to our co-presenter, UCLA Anderson School of Management, for making tonight's event possible. And also to invite you all to the, event, uh, the reception we are having right here in the back of the space right now. Uh, please grab a glass of wine or beer or water and hang out with us and continue the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you.